Welcome to On The Money, where you can find out anything and everything to do with finance, business and the economy. On The Money is broadcast live from the studios of Radio 2 SER nationwide on the Community Radio Network. I'm Roderick Chambers and coming up on the program this week... I think you'll find the government will release policy that will really, really encourage uh, local businesses to get into or expand their manufacturing base here in Australia. Startups are down, perhaps unsurprisingly since the coronavirus lockdown, but business nerds are starting to get excited as the restrictions ease. Why? Because plenty of new startups will start to see the light of day. Also on the program... Three of Japan's biggest institutional banks adopted policies to exclude any financing of new coal-fired power. And one, Yasuho, had been the world's largest private financier of coal. They're now out of coal. Big finance is deserting coal worldwide. Bob Carr talks to us about the unseen trend that's been happening in the last two months. Stay tuned for all of this and more coming up on On The Money. First, one thing that would be pretty hard to do in a lockdown is to start a new business. And startups are reported to be down 27% in April alone, according to ABS figures. Marketing guru Darren Moffat has launched a new podcast for startups and smaller businesses under the masthead of the Nerds for Business. And I asked him whether he thought that startups would rebound to their previous levels, perhaps later in the year. I think they will, but um, I think it'll take a little while for the volume of, of those new company registrations to get back up to where they were pre-COVID-19. I mean, so we saw a 5,000 uh, drop in the month of April, uh, which is 27% down from the previous month. So it's a very big uh, drop. Uh, but, um, I, you know, I'm tipping that we're going to see more first-time entrepreneurs entering the market over the next six months. So do you think it's people that uh, had their ideas and were kind of getting ready to start at the beginning of the year? Or is it people that have been sitting at home thinking, you know what, I could set up a new business? Yeah, I think it's a bit of both. You know, I mean, I think um, there's, there's always quite a large cohort of people out there who tinker or toy with the idea of starting a business and might have a bit of a plan B, you know. They think about one day they might like to buy a franchise or they might like to, you know, get into this particular type of business activity. But for many of those, the COVID-19 will, in, in some ways, force them. It'll force their hand. Uh, I think, you know, obviously unemployment's jumped by six or 700,000 in one hit. And, uh, look, that's going to take a long time to wind that back. So many people, particularly those who might receive redundancies from their existing employer, I think you'll find a lot of those uh, cohort will will take the leap and start a business. Yeah, because the JobKeeper's really, in some ways, put things on hold a bit, hasn't it? it it's uh, it's put this uh, sort of difficult decision off until a bit later, and we probably could still have a little bit of pain on the way, couldn't we? 
Yeah, absolutely, uh, Rod. And I think, um, you know, that's really regrettable. Um, I think the, the government's done a pretty good job, given all the craziness and really difficult uh, circumstances. But a big bone of contention will be how they come out of this sort of so-called hibernation period. So the job um, keeper allowance is due to expire in September. And, well, who knows exactly how that's going to play out. But I think, A, for a start, you'll probably see the government extend that to some uh, to some extent. But, B, um, it's really delaying the inevitable to some extent. You know, we're, we're, I think we're almost certainly to see a an increase in the systemic rate of unemployment. So that, uh, you know, what the baseline unemployment rate is prior to COVID, it was about 5%. And, and all the economists that I'm reading are tipping that that's probably going to land somewhere around 10%, 12%. Um, when we uh, get to the end of the JobKeeper allowance. A number of politicians, both at state and federal level, have been touting the benefits of manufacturing. I noticed Gladys Berejiklian was particularly pleased about the number of people that are starting up factories to manufacture things. Do you think this is going to be a bit of a trend that we'll find? There'll be an uptick in manufacturing? I do. Uh, I think that's something that will take a little while to wind up. Manufacturing is fairly capital intense, but I think the government policy now is shifting heavily in that direction. So over the coming months, it won't surprise me if we see government make some really significant announcements about government support for new manufacturing. Because, yes, uh, what you touch on is such an important point. The pandemic has really exposed the threat to supply lines. So because they the manufacturing supply lines are so tied up with global supply chains, in particular into China, it's now becoming quite apparent that there's, you know, there's a downside to that. And so I think you'll find the government will release policy that will really, really encourage uh, local businesses to get into or expand their manufacturing base here in Australia. And no doubt you're going to be watching this very carefully for your podcast, Nerds of Business. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the things you've been talking about is the changes in consumer confidence and the way people are going to be behaving after this. It's going to, you think it's going to change people. What, what are some of the things you think will, will happen? It's really interesting because I think when the government first started responding to this crisis, you know, there was all this talk of snapback and like we're going to go back to you know, fairly quickly what it used to be like. Well, uh, it's now becoming increasingly apparent that is not going to happen. We're in an utterly changed world, both on the business side, but also on the consumer side, so how consumers make purchases. So one of the key themes that we can already see and that we will address in Nerds of Business in the, in the, in the podcast episode is the rise of the digital channel. So what this pandemic has done, it's dragged us into the future at twice the speed or growth that we were otherwise travelling. So... Because all of the retail, uh, the shops and the you know, various uh, pubs and cafes have been shut and people haven't been going to the shops as much, online spending has soared. And that's really across all different verticals. So that's not likely to change. Um, you know, of course, people will go back to the shops, but once they get used to certain consumer behaviours, uh, it then becomes ingrained or embedded. So the rise of the digital channel for consumer behaviour and how businesses respond to that uh, is a systemic change. And that is one of the key trends or learnings we can take already out of this pandemic. And how do you think government is going to respond to that? Because the way 
traditionally governments have generated income streams is through licensing and uh, uh, the different things and various taxes, payroll tax, for instance, all those sorts of things. The online area isn't nearly so well as uh, uh, um, tapped for income for a government, is it? Well, no. I mean, they've, they've got the problem where some of the biggest players in the online space in Australia are multinational corporations like Google and um, Apple, of course, and Amazon and so on. And uh, they've made some changes to the thin capitalisation rules so that um, the government is getting a greater take of tax from those platforms than they were previously. But they're still not getting anywhere near as much as they should. So you're quite right. I agree with uh, your premise there that the government is likely to change the tax mix. And it'll be interesting to see how that plays out, whether or not they go along ideological lines or they become more pragmatic and practical and adopt many of the ideas that were raised by Ken Henry in, um, in the Henry uh, Tax Reform Plan from 2011. And one of the key planks of that document, for instance, was a broad-based land tax. So should, do, do we want state governments to keep relying on stamp duty uh, or do we want to put in a broad-based land tax where everyone pays a little bit of land tax each year? And I think that those are the kinds of questions that will start to be aired out in the media a lot more over the coming months. Well, I, I think people should perhaps take a look at Nerds of Business if they haven't already. And thanks very much, Darren, for talking to us here on On The Money. No worries, Rod. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was Darren Moffat there, one of the presenters and uh, I, I guess the initiators of the podcast Nerds of Business. I'm Roderick Chambers and you're listening to On The Money. On the money for everything financial. On the money gives me the edge when I have to sort out my finances. I love listening to On the Money. Yes, and I hope you do too. Well, the rise of social media has had an unprecedented impact on the marketing industry and never before have businesses had such engagement with their target demographics. But as treacherous as the social media marketing environment can be, there are ways to get it right every time. In this episode of Hot Off the Press, Veronica Alashina speaks with Suzanne Chadwick, founder and CEO of The Connection Exchange and author of Play Big, Brand Bold, about her business experience, power of asking, balancing a full-time corporate job with a startup with two children under the age of five. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what you do? I run a business called The Connection Exchange and I am a bold branding and speaker coach and I mainly work with women online to help them to grow their businesses. So helping them to get really confident with their brand and then be able to scale their business so that they're ideally not trading hours for dollars at the end of the day. Uh, and so that's what I've been doing for the last six years. I know that you uh, were working in a corporate role before. 
Um, and one thing that struck me about your work is is how passionate you are about what you're doing. And it comes across in everything from your book to your podcast and all of your online content. So how did you become so passionate about business building and, and helping other women? Yeah, well, I have to be honest, like I, uh, I come from a HR and recruitment background in the corporate sector and I had the opportunity to start building a branding division within a corporate. Uh, and when I started to build that out, I actually had to start creating everything. So pricing and packaging and looking at how we were going to go to market and how we were going to build our brand and what we were going to do and the projects and all the rest of it. And so going through that experience of building something from scratch and learning the ropes on how to actually build the business in a really commercial way was the first time I had ever done it. And I did that within the confines of a corporate environment. And then I had some girlfriends who had uh, been professionals in the corporate world, were on maternity leave, and then they wanted to start their own businesses. And they were kind of like, how did you create the business that you're now consulting in and leading? And I started working with them kind of over wine on dining room tables in the evening. And I just found that I loved it. Like I really love the nuts and bolts of creating all the elements that go into a business and then really working with somebody to grow their confidence in it and be able to build it and grow it and, you know, really see them, I guess, create something that they love and that really works for them in their life. Yeah, it really comes across when I was looking at all of your content and reading your book. You have this excitement for watching other people succeed in their business ventures and it's very infectious. That's awesome. I love that. But yeah, I just, um, for me, the community is really important. Um, and I know that so many women start their business to have financial freedom and to have time flexibility. And so, you know, the reason that they do it, the why behind why they do it, I think is a really important one. Absolutely. And can we talk a little bit about that balancing business with other responsibilities? For example, if someone is working full time or also a mother, how did you do it? And what's your main piece of advice for women in business and women who want to start a business? Yeah, for me, I always think, it, everything starts with the compelling reason. And so what I mean by that is that when I started my business, I actually had two small children under the age of five and I was working a full-time job. So it is doable. And I think that, you know, I think it depends on your support structure as well. Like I didn't have my family per se because they're close, but they weren't immediate to us. But I do have my husband and I do have my husband and he does a lot in the house. But also I'm very structured with my time. So when I started my business, I would be working. I would you know, be looking after my kids, all the rest of it. And then for the first probably year or more, I used to work most nights. Now, I just kind of think that there are seasons in your business and your life. Now and probably when I got into years three and four, I stopped working weekends, I stopped working nights and I got a lot more balance once the business was up and running. But I think you've got to kind of have that compelling reason where you're like, I really want this and so I am going to structure my life, be really clear about what I can do and when I can do it, but also be realistic about what I can achieve 
during the time that I've got right now. I make time for the things that I really want to do. And I think that when people say to me, I don't have time, I think that, and it's not always true, but a lot of the time it's a choice. Mm, I wanted to ask off the back of that, when you're starting a business or in that initial building phase when everything's very intense, um, you're often wearing multiple hats. So you're your own CEO, your employee, <laughs> your accountant and your own branding and marketing department. Yeah. Um, so how can we be the most effective when we're wearing multiple hats? I think, you know, something it's about knowing what you're really good at and being able to do that, but then also spending some time to understand the basics of things. So, for example, I got a virtual assistant quite early on and she didn't do a lot, but she just did bits and pieces that were additional things that would have just cost me more time. Uh, And I think a lot of times, you know, we sort of say, well, I don't feel like I'm at the point yet. I'm not earning enough money to outsourcing. But what we don't realize is that it's probably costing us more to do it ourselves than it does to outsource it uh, to somebody else. Because, you know, I always say my uh, VA or my online business manager, something that would take me three hours or half a day to do, she does in 20 minutes. So I think sometimes we think we're saving ourselves, but we're actually not. Uh, when you are starting out, I think it's really good just to understand things anyway. I know that there's um, a certain business person that always says, just know enough to make you dangerous, which just means like know enough of the basics so that you know what it should look like. So even when you outsource it, you can tell whether something's going the way you want it to go or not. Absolutely. And one of the things that you really talk about is the power of asking. Yes. Yeah. I mean, my mum always used to say that. And she used to like say it jokingly, but not. Uh, you know, <laughs> she'd just be like, you don't ask, you don't get. And uh, and I just grew up with that. So I'm pretty shameless when, <laughs> when it comes to asking. I'll ask for anything because at the end of the day, what is literally the worst that can happen? Somebody goes, no. And I'm like, okay, cool. I'll just ask somebody else or I'll just find it another way. I just think people put so much, I don't know what it is. It's like personal um, weight on asking for things. It's like if somebody says no, it's such a big deal. And I don't really understand why. To me, it's a little bit of a game. It's like if I ask 10 people, like I'll probably get at least like five yeses. So why not ask? Suzanne Chadwick, founder and CEO of The Connection Exchange and author of Play Big, Brand Bold, speaking with Veronica Alashina. This is On The Money, broadcast around Australia from the studios of 2SERFM on the Community Radio Network. I'm Roderick Chambers. Well, the state of the economy is a big concern for business and government. And fortunately, Josh Frydenberg has announced a lot of measures designed to stimulate business into recovery. Former Foreign Minister, New South Wales Premier and now UTS Industry Professor for Business and Climate Change, Bob Carr, has been watching what major world finances are saying about new coal ventures. In a recent article in the Sydney Morning Herald, he also looked at new ways of tackling our climate problems, and I asked him how we would have coped if our recent bushfires had occurred simultaneously with the COVID-19 crisis. 
Yeah, that's something that came up in the interview I did with Kim Flannery, um, who's a, a great Australian, um, been writing on climate longer than just about anyone else, um, and unrivaled when it comes to explaining science to the general public. And he said to me, imagine, imagine if we had been hit with the COVID-19 pandemic at the same time as December, January, February, were engaged in that great fight against fires. I thought that was a frightening reminder that in this unpredictable world, this world of extreme risk, radical uncertainty, um, we had to grapple with both those challenges at once. Well, well, uh, bushfires are a huge uh, release of carbon into the atmosphere, aren't they? Oh, yes. And um, the CSIRO, as I wrote in an opinion piece that appeared uh, in the early stages of the fires, had authored, I think, a good 20 articles mourning the link between higher average temperatures and an increased fire risk. And some of the CSIRO research looked at specific locations and looked at the highest temperatures and, and when that triggers a higher fire likelihood and then looked at the, the uh, increase in high-risk days as average temperatures increase. So the megafires were a climate event and one that had been predicted by scientists by what we know as fire ecologists. And some of the things that a lot of people have been talking about recently is the things that we can control, and, and one, of course, is the burning of coal. Now, you know, from a business standpoint, there's a lot of people that are taking that out of the equation. They're not going to be investing in coal. I noticed in your article in the Herald that the Norwegian government pension fund has dumped its stake in AGL, for instance. Yeah, that's the biggest sovereign wealth fund in the world, the Norwegian government pension fund, and it's dumped its shares in AGL and it's placed BHP under observation um, because they, as a matter of policy, exclude companies dependent on thermal coal. Now, that's a striking change, a policy that's been taken up by more and more institutions. For example, only in April, only last month, three of Japan's biggest institutional banks adopted policies to exclude any financing of new coal-fired power. And one, Misuho, had been the world's largest private financier of coal. They're now out of coal. And they followed in quick succession four of the Japanese trading houses. Two of them have sold their stakes in Australian coal mines, reflecting the same policy shift. And um, two of Germany's biggest asset managers, Decker and Union Investment, all this last month, all this in April. Well, I think one of the things that Tim Flannery was also talking about was how we get investment in some of these new renewable technologies. He was talking about the uh, opportunity of seaweed to, uh, to as well as a, a, well as the food that we're familiar with as a way of capturing carbon as well. Any of these funds looking at putting funds into more new energy projects? With all of these funds, without exception, the decision being made to exit coal or thermal coal is also linked to a decision to put more money into renewables. And that means that Tim Flannery, telling me in the the interview 
uh, we're talking about, that uh, we've got to investigate the enormous potential of deep-sea kelp farming and concentrated solar. Um, he can discuss what we might see as science fiction possibilities because there is now this big shift of available capital looking for opportunities in renewables. I also noticed that in your article you mentioned that there was a number of countries like Belgium has been the first one to become completely coal-free. Some of these countries, though, are relying on nuclear power. It's hard to see that being as an option for us at the moment, though, isn't it? Yeah, it's not, and nuclear power is just too expensive. And that was really tested in the United States. If any country was going to finance nuclear power, it was the United States at that time, especially when it was keen to achieve energy independence from the Middle East. But it hasn't taken off. And it hasn't taken off because of the sheer complexity and expense of nuclear and the plummeting cost of renewables. The governments of Belgium, Austria and Sweden are declaring their countries coal-free and large companies like Citi and Morgan Stanley and Allianz are withdrawing from coal. Getting society and business and government all moving forward in the same direction has always been a problem. But it seems they are all finally coming together, aren't they? They are. And uh, it makes it exciting, but it's just strikingly interesting to me that even in the middle of a pandemic and the economic collapse that has, that has brought with it, you've got the corporate sector saying we're exiting coal and moving into renewables. And uh, this really is a challenge to the Australian government. With the corporate sector moving in that direction, why would you want to be sceptical, resistant, denialist about what's upon us? UTS Industry Professor for Business and Climate Change, Bob Carr, speaking with me there. And that's it for us again on On The Money This Week. Tune in again next week to find out everything you need to know about finance, business and the economy. Thanks to our producer, Veronica Alashina, this week. On the Money is produced in the studios of Radio 2 SER for the Community Radio Network and, of course, with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find all our shows at 2SER.com slash on the money and you can subscribe to our podcasts, new episodes coming out every week. Follow us on Twitter, look for at OnTheMoney2SER and follow us on Facebook and Instagram as well. I'm Roderick Chambers. It's been great being with you. Do stay safe. We're going to be back again next week to give you the inside running on all things financial. Thanks for your company.